Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. All right, Joe. Well, the Bama LSU game did not disappoint. Uh, 46-41. It was basically like a Big 12 game like we all thought it would be. Although a little bit deceiving on that final score, I thought LSU uh, definitely appeared to be a two-score better team in that game. Of course, Alabama got that that, that touchdown at the end with uh, very surprising prevent coverage right there. But a really interesting game, kind of a tale of two halves. LSU absolutely dominated in the first half, and Alabama made quite the run in the second half to make it interesting. That's right, Dan, and – how many times have we seen a Nick Saban coach team? Uh, the few times that they've trailed significantly in games of this magnitude, obviously they rarely trail by three touchdowns. But in the situations you know where they've been down maybe a score or multiple scores, um, it seems like in the blink of an eye it can turn it around so quick and they're never completely out of the game. Uh, even when it was 33-13 uh, to 13 at halftime, I just kind of felt that they would at some point make it a compelling game down the stretch. But ultimately, I feel like the biggest story is what LSU did. I have to give Joe Burrow so much credit. The poise that he was able to play with, I've never seen an opposing quarterback go into that venue at Bryant-Denny Stadium and perform that way. 393 passing yards. I mean, that is just unfathomable, those types of numbers from an opposing quarterback in that environment. No, he really played great. And what he did, like what he's done all season, is he made all the clutch plays. Uh, They got up by three scores, and Alabama, of course, made the turnover on the first drive of the second half to make it tighter. But when Alabama got in by one touchdown – Burrow led that very long, convincing drive to get him back up by 12 points. And he had to pick up multiple third and third downs and I think even a fourth down with his legs. And it, it was just great play from him and very well-timed. And I heard I read an article that was really interesting that mentioned you know, there's a lot of hoopla now about freshman quarterbacks, you know, uh, Bo Nix, JT Daniels, all these different uh, guys that nationwide, um, Sam Howell over North Carolina. But what Joe Burrow showed is that there still is a lot of value in having a fifth-year senior at quarterback because he can go into any environment, Brian Denny, and make the play when it matters. Oh, absolutely. And having a great running back, too, and budding superstar Clyde edwards Blair. I mean, how good was he at times? 103 rushing yards, three touchdowns on the ground, had uh, the difference-making touchdown with just a couple of minutes to go to, go to help seal that game um, after Alabama you know, almost made um, the last-second um, onside kick to really make things crazy interesting. But I think that, like I said, the biggest takeaway for me is what LSU did have to give them props. But I do look at Alabama from their standpoint, I always feel like for the most part, with the exception of maybe when Clemson has played Alabama, most of the time, if you're going to be a Nick Saban Alabama team, you have to win the turnover battle. You have to force some opportunistic turnovers, or you have to get some type of fluky play go your way. 
And what did you think about in the first quarter on the opening drive for Alabama, the ball just falling or slipping out of Tua's hand and hitting the ground? I've never seen anything like that. Well, Joe, uh, you probably have seen something like that because it reminded me of Aaron Brooks back in the day with the Saints when he used to do the deal where he'd bring his arm back so hard behind his head when he was throwing the ball that he'd fumble it backwards. I swear he did that like once every two games. Yeah. And that, that's what I thought about. But I think probably what it was, Joe, I think that when he, he stepped on his ankle weird and I think there was a pain shock and that's why he dropped that ball. And that's that's what my first thought was with it. Now I have no idea whether that's accurate or not, but on TV that's the way that looked to me. Mm-hmm. But that, that's a believable, um, you know, possibility there. But you look at Alabama statistically. Uh, Tua had that turnover. He had another interception that was key for LSU, allowing them to have a touchdown uh, at the end of the first half to get some extra points. Uh, Najee Harris um, had a standout game at running back for Alabama. Devontae Smith, um, he showed up and showed out with 213 uh, receiving yards. He's had a couple of games this year where he's really just had some uh, gaudy uh, statistical numbers of receiving. Uh, The Alabama defense and the LSU defense, um, as predicted, are just not uh, the stalwart units that we've uh, grown accustomed to watching. These are two defenses that can definitely give up the points, and that's why uh, we saw the shootout shootout that a lot of people um, had predicted. Yeah, Joe, there's no doubt that this year neither Alabama nor LSU have elite defenses. Um, You know, this year the teams that have elite defenses are Ohio State has one, Clemson still has one, and then Auburn. And I think really outside of that, in Wisconsin – for the most part. Although Wisconsin, I think it's been exposed a little bit when they played good football teams. But, I mean, really outside of uh, Clemson, Ohio State, and Auburn, I don't really think there are that many elite defenses this year. But, I mean, Alabama and LSU don't even really fall in the next category. That's how, how bad the defenses are right now. So definitely something we're not used to seeing with them. Um, Joe, I really thought that the player of the game, as good as Burrow did, I really thought Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is the one that made the difference. Especially, I thought the biggest play of that game was that third and 11 where Alabama sent the house on the blitz. And it looked like Burrow was going to go down, but he sidestepped the guy and then hit Hilaire on a on a screen. And Hilaire basically had to like crawl over Alabama players for the last seven yards of it and got the first down by a football. I thought that was the most amazing play of the game, and I really thought, you know, if you think about when that was in the game, uh, Alabama just made it a six-point game, and if Hilaire doesn't get that first down, LSU's punting at about their own 40-yard line, and Alabama has all the momentum. So I thought that was, in my mind, the biggest play of the game. That that was definitely very, very significant. Uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, he's only a sophomore, but – he really performed well on such a big stage and 20 carries for 103 yards. I mean, yes, that's not, you know, like he was getting a lot of breakaway carries. He definitely had to earn his yardage and work for every um, yard that he got. But I think that it was uh, some of the biggest carries, like you referenced, converting uh, crucial third downs, reaching the end zone three times. I mean, it's just crazy when you think about the fact that LSU had 
six offensive touchdowns in this game, three passing and three rushing, the most points scored ever against a Nick Saban Alabama team. And um, another statistic that I loved um, personally as a fan of the Saints is that um, the last time that Nick Saban had been down by 20 points um, in a college game as a head coach was 20 years ago in 1999 against Purdue when he was the head coach at Michigan State. And the quarterback of Purdue was Drew Brees. Hmm, how about that? And I definitely thought coming away from that game, um, yeah, I think you and I both thought the LSU was maybe a slightly better team going in, but I definitely came out of that game thinking that LSU was a significantly better team than Alabama based on what I saw. And I really think that, you know, the end of the halves is what made it, uh, is what got LSU the win in the first half and what made it an interesting game in the second half because you had that, that 30 seconds at the end of the first half where LSU scores a touchdown and then Tua throws the interception instead of them trying to take it to the half only being down by two scores. LSU gets another touchdown. But then the beginning of the second half, LSU has the chance to put the game away. They're having a great drive, and then uh, Xavier McKinney makes that great strip of Burrow where, I mean, you can debate whether it's a fumble or interception, but either way, Alabama gets the ball and they score right there to suddenly make it a 13-point game. Because if he doesn't make that play, I think LSU gets up by 27, and then it's a curve stomping. And so it's interesting how, you know, the end of the first half is what gave LSU enough of a cushion to win. The beginning of the second half is what made it to where Alabama made it a tight game at one point. No, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, conspiracy theorists can say you know, everything they want to about um, how the game played out and how Alabama still is bad as they played throughout the afternoon um, came within five points of LSU. Um, Alabama fans will, of course, try to point to that the rest of this season if they can run the table and finish 11-1 and one as a calling card for why they should be included in the playoff. But, you know, we can leave that debate for another day. But uh, LSU, though, like I said, the stories about them, credit to what they did, credit, uh, you know, to Edward Ron. Um, you know, I had my doubts about him as the LSU head coach, but he definitely uh, proved me wrong. No, there's no doubt, Joe. I mean, the guy did an incredible job having his team prepared. Uh, those got those players, you can tell they love playing for him, and they had his back 100%. And, I mean, he just gets the, he gets the most out of his players – and he had a great game plan going in. I mean, their offensive game plan with Joe Brady and with the way they spread the receivers out and the way they incorporated the running game with the layer was, was truly fantastic. And I definitely think right now, I mean, short of LSU dropping a bad game to Ole Miss or A&M, I think Ed Orgeron is the coach of the year. And definitely it looks like LSU's going to play off. Yeah, Definitely. All right, speaking of uh, teams that not are definitely going to go to the playoff, but a game that had playoff implications, uh, Row the Boat had, I think, the biggest upset of the weekend. I'll be honest, Joe, I know a lot of people said that Minnesota was a good football team. I gave them less than zero chance of winning Penn State, winning against Penn State. I mean, because to me, it was like Penn State is a team that's been there for the last 50 years. They've had very brief periods of time where they weren't, 
a real relevant college football program. In Minnesota, I mean, they had one team, I think, when I was, like, in middle school that had, like, Lawrence Maroney and, you know, whatever, Barber, the, the running back, Marion Barber the third, And that was a good Minnesota team. I think they were, like, 10-3 and three or something like that. But they've never been anywhere close to actually being a team that was going to be, you know, a playoff team or a BCS championship team. And I, did, I thought the moment would be too big for them. I didn't necessarily think that Penn State was that much of a better team than them. I just, you know, I kind of subscribe by the rule generally that when a team is playing the biggest game of their lives for the first time in their program's history, they generally lose. But credit to, to what, uh, what P.J. Fleck was able to do, he had his, his players extremely focused uh, they had a really good game plan with their short passes. And I came away extremely impressed by Tanner Morgan, Michigan's quarterback, because he was extremely accurate. Not Michigan's quarterback, Minnesota's quarterback, because Tanner Morgan was an extremely accurate quarterback. That's why, Dan, he finished at 18 for 20. I mean, you can't ask for really a better uh, completion percentage than that for a, a college quarterback. And what amazed me was that their star running back, Rodney Smith, is one of the better running backs that a lot of people have never heard of. He only had 51 rushing yards, yet they still were able to win this game. Uh, Tanner Morgan had three touchdown passes. Um, the receivers were just fantastic. Rashad Bateman with over 200 receiving yards. Tyler Johnson over 100 yards receiving. That was the story to me. And then on the flip side, Penn State with just too many turnovers. Sean Clifford throws three interceptions. That's just not a recipe for success on the road at Minnesota with all those uh, turnovers. And what's really compelling now is that a lot of people, um, like you and I, were skeptical of Minnesota, and I think justifiably so because they had not really played anyone so far on their schedule. But now that they've beaten Penn State, you start looking at their schedule the last few weeks. Yes, they have to play Wisconsin, but suddenly that's a much more winnable game than you would have thought earlier in the season when Wisconsin's defense was dominating and Jonathan Taylor was going off. Uh, Taylor's still putting up great numbers, but I do think the teams have made some adjustments and figured out how to play Wisconsin to have a lot more success. So if you see a Minnesota team that can now conceivably finish the season with a 12-0 record and then gets the Big Ten championship game and play probably Ohio State, you know, suddenly they're on that radar for a potential surprise berth to the playoff. Yeah, definitely, Joe. I mean, and what was interesting to me is Minnesota is a team that they've played a lot of the Big Ten programs over the years tight, but then they blow a lot of games at the end. Uh, I remember I watched a Penn, I watched a Minnesota Michigan game one time with uh, one of my really good friends' dads, who went to Minnesota and they were beating Michigan thirty-one to seven in the fourth quarter. We were like, "Yeah, look, Minnesota's about to beat Michigan." He's like, "You watch, they'll find a way to lose," and they ended up losing that day too. And I kind of saw that happening a little bit at the end of the Penn State game because Penn State made quite the run at the end of the game, and they even had the ball in hand with a chance to win it and just barely missed out on a touchdown. And so it almost went down the other way. But, Joe, what I'm interested to see with Minnesota is I think they've got a good chance against Wisconsin 
the the road trip to Iowa City to take on the Hawkeyes this weekend, that's a game that worries me a little bit for Minnesota because Iowa's such a disciplined team that never makes mistakes, and you have to play your game to beat them. And it's going to be hard for uh, P.J. Fleck to get his players focused after what they did last week to go play a very well-disciplined, difficult team on the road. But, uh, that's a very valid point. And Iowa's a team that's had some disappointment this year. They definitely thought they were going to fare better than losing two or three games. It's a team with a lot of talent. And a quarterback, excuse me, and a quarterback in uh, Nathan Stanley, who's a senior starter and very experienced. And so it's definitely going to be um, a game that Minnesota needs to be on upset alert and not come out, um, you know, reliving uh, the memories of last week's victory against Penn State. They definitely need to be looking uh, directly uh, to the next challenge. Well, Joe, speaking of the next challenge for you and I, let's do our lines of the week. Uh, My line of the week that I have is Clemson – and Wake Forest. Uh, Joe, looking at the over-under on this, these are two offenses right now that are just playing out of their minds. Uh, a lot of people were giving um, a lot of heat to Trevor Lawrence earlier this season for throwing some interceptions and not looking quite as sharp as he did in his freshman year. But the last few games, I mean, he has been near perfect. And, of course, he has that amazing stable of receivers with Justin Ross and T. Higgins and Amari Rogers and just a, a really amazing receiving core. And, of course, with uh, um, what Etienne is doing at running back right now, they really are a very complete offense. But then on the flip side, Wake Forest, uh, Jamie Noonan, probably one of the best quarterbacks that casual college football fans haven't really heard about. I mean, the dude is lit it up in every game, even when they lose. And I do think that Clemson still has a very good defense that's, you know, they're, I think they're an elite defense. But this Noonan guy does it to everybody. And I kind of think that Clemson's been killing people so much that I think they're going to give up some points to Wake Forest. I'm not saying Wake Forest is going to even make this a close game, but I do think they're going to put up a lot of points. And the over-under is 62-and-a-half. I think this game vastly exceeds the 62-and-a-half. And sadly for Clemson, Wake Forest is the best team in the ACC that's not them, and they're not even in the top 25. So I'm going to tell you, if you're going to Biloxi, put it all down on the over on Clemson, Wake Forest because it's Dan's, the ACC sucks, lock of the week. Okay. Um, one that I looked at for my line of the week for Joe um, go down to Houston, Texas. Uh, Houston hosting um, Memphis this weekend. Um, this is a Houston team that I feel like is largely a check out this season. Um, they've had some players like their quarterback, King, and another wide receiver that have decided to lead the team and redshirt the rest of this season. And I feel like um, on the flip side, Memphis is on fire offensively. Mike Norville has this team playing with so much confidence. He's one of the hottest names right now in college coaching circles for maybe the Florida State or Arkansas head jobs. And um, I think that right now um, Memphis is favored by 10 points. I think they definitely cover and exceed that um, difference by a wide margin and probably defeat um, a really uh, Houston team by three or four touchdowns. 
I like that pick, Joe. And speaking of the ACC being garbage, I think Memphis is the number two team in the ACC if they joined it right now. (laughs) (laughs) I can see it. All right, Joe, speaking of a number two game, uh, Auburn and Georgia, of course, the Deep South's oldest rivalry, uh, one of the games that I anticipate most this year, I think is a, is a game right now that is for number two in the SEC. Because you look at it, uh, Auburn right now has two losses, but they do have a chance to kind of do what they did two years ago if they can beat Georgia and Alabama Georgia is they, – they had a terrible loss to South Carolina, but they've been playing some great football. And if they can win out the rest of the season, they have the chance to be the number two team in the SEC before the SEC championship game when they'll get a chance at LSU. Um, Joe, uh, as great as the offenses were in the Alabama-LSU game that we saw last weekend, we are seeing literally the opposite game on Saturday in Jordan-Hare Stadium. These two defenses – these are elite defenses. They're fantastic. Uh, Georgia not giving up a single rushing touchdown all year. Auburn with basically an NFL defensive line right now. I think they could they could take out like maybe the Dolphins. I think maybe doesn't have a good of, as good of a defensive line as Auburn does right now. And there's going to be points at a premium. And if you like old school nine to six kind of football, that's what you're getting with Georgia Auburn week this weekend. It definitely did, and what's kind of peculiar about the matchup is you do see offensive playmakers on both sides, but with Georgia, you have an experienced quarterback, a really talented running back in Swift, but wide receivers that just are not as talented as some of the other units they've had in years past, and also wide receivers that are just not as experienced and proven. And then on the Auburn side, you see a team with some really good receivers like Seth Williams, pretty good running backs, but a quarterback you know, is still learning the ropes in the SEC and trying to prove himself in some big games. And so I think that those factors with, um, as you mentioned, the um, great defenses that are going to be on the field and Jordan Hare on Saturday, um, that bodes well for a defensive slugfest. And so I think it's important for uh, Georgia to come out and start fast. Um, I always feel like when you're the road team that you have to get off to a strong start. Otherwise, I feel like with Auburn's uh, defensive front, um, with the way that they play, um, especially at home, that it will be a long day for From if they're not able to have some success early. Well, Joe, I definitely agree with that. The last time that Georgia played in Jordan-Hare Stadium, they got absolutely blitzed. I was there with my wife, and it was a, it was a beautiful game. It was when Jake Fromm was a freshman, and it was a really overwhelming environment, and Georgia got an, an opening field goal. But after that, they kind of shut down offensively, and Auburn really laid it to them. And I think that could theoretically happen this time, too, if Georgia doesn't get off to a strong start. Because I think that there's going to be a, a really intense home field advantage for Auburn in this game. Not just because it's, it's Georgia, which is one of Auburn's two biggest rivals, and sometimes I consider it Auburn's biggest rival, but because of the fact that Auburn's had a very weird schedule this year, Joe, where they haven't had a lot of home games. And it's been a long time since they've had a home game. They had LSU... I mean, they had all this, but they haven't had any of their real big-time rivals at home. 
this year, and it's been kind of a weak home slate, and suddenly you have Georgia coming in. I think there's going to be a lot of Auburn fans that haven't really wanted to go to any of the other ones, but are going to going to be really rockets for this game against uh, their big rival. No, that's a good point too, and they definitely win with the vein with hosting uh, Georgia this week, and then in two weeks, um, Alabama to close the season. I think that when you look at um, the matchup more closely. I feel like the SEC commissioner, a lot of the conference um, people in charge would like to see Georgia win the game because then it would um, allow for scenarios, say, where LSU were to hypothetically play Georgia in the SEC championship game. Either team that wins the SEC championship game goes to the playoff. You know, kind of a nightmare scenario for the SEC would be if um, LSU were to lose to a two or three loss Florida or Georgia team. And so that is one thing to consider. You know, I never want to throw out conspiracy theories, but, you know, the officiating could try to favor Georgia in this game. I kind of look for that. But I do think that Auburn um, should have the advantage in this game because I just do not trust um, the wide receivers for Georgia to help from out. I think that anytime there's going to be a third and long situation, it's going to be very difficult for Georgia to convert on those plays. I think that Auburn will be able to load the box, try to shut down or contain DeAndre Swift. And I'm afraid for Jake Brom that he's going to be um, dealing with the pass rush pretty much uh, all afternoon. So, I think I'm leaning towards Auburn in a close game. Well, Joe, uh, my first thought in this game is exactly what you were talking about with the officials. I think they're going to be brutal in this game because you're right. I think after what happened with Alabama, they want to have Georgia in there against LSU with a chance for either team to make it to the college football playoff. The biggest problem for Georgia, and this is not something that's been reported on a lot, is they lost three offensive linemen to injuries last week during the game. Now, I think a couple of them might be coming back, but you don't even want offensive linemen at 80% going against this behemoth Auburn defensive line. Um, So I think that's going to be an issue, and I think that Marlon Davidson and then Derrick Brown is from Georgia. This will be the last time that he ever takes on Georgia. I look for Derrick Brown to have an absolutely monster game in this one. And I think the Auburn defense is going to get it done. And I also think that Bo Nix is not going to have a bad game. He's, he's, he's played a lot better at home. And I think that you're going to see – we were talking about it earlier with the lack of receiver depth for Georgia. I think you're going to see a superior Auburn uh, receiving core make some plays in this game. And I like Auburn in this game also. I'm going to say Auburn wins 20-16. to 16. Um, One other thing I'm looking at is I feel like Georgia will have trouble um, converting uh, drives into touchdowns. I think when they get in the red zone, they'll have to settle for too many field goals um, by Blankenship. And I look for there to probably be three field goal attempts for him. So that's where got, I get nine of the points, maybe one touchdown in the first half. But after that, I think that Auburn really uh, shuts them down. Yeah, Joe, that's, Joe, that's kind of where I'm at with it, too. I like Auburn to win a one-touchdown game, 24-17, to 17, and set up a really interesting scenario for the SEC 
with the Auburn Alabama game as to whichever team you know really is, has the best chance to make the playoff based on their wins. But we can discuss that later. Um, you know, on the flip side, Joe, for our other team, they're taking on LSU this weekend. Not really a lot of hope that that Ole Miss can get a W in this one. But what what is the what what do you feel like is a good outcome for Matt Luke to give some semblance of you know motivation and confidence for us as Ole Miss fans moving forward? I just think that Ole Miss needs to make the game competitive going in or going into the second quarter for sure. I mean, this does not need to be a scenario where LSU dominates from the opening kickoff. I remember um, a game back in 2011, the last time LSU had defeated Alabama. They played Ole Miss a couple of weeks after that, and the Ole Miss quarterback at the time, Zach Street, threw a pick six on the first play of the game for Ole Miss. They do not need a disastrous scenario like that. They need to stay competitive for a few minutes coming into the game, keep it respectable, and more importantly, stay healthy um, going into the Egg Bowl against Mississippi State. Don't lose any crucial players to injury. Well, Joe, yeah, there still is a small outside chance, too, that if Ole Miss could beat State, that they could get into a bowl game. I feel like they've made so many bowl games now. There's a lot of 5-7 and seven teams that get into bowls now. So that is something they need to think about. But they also need to, they need to hang with LSU. It doesn't need to be a game. Like that one that I went to two years ago where Fournette had like 280 yards rushing against Ole Miss on like 10 carries, you know. So we'll just have to see what it is. Yeah. But, you know, that being said, uh, thank you for all of our listeners for checking out our college football theme show. We're about to do our pro one next. Um, all of our old episodes now are available on Spotify if you search the Dan and Joe Sports Show. Also encourage you to like our fan page on Facebook, the Dana Just Sports Show fan page. And normally we do Wednesday nights at nine, but we'll do that again. And I'm Dan. And I'm Jeff.